The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Schizophrenia Community Radio. By listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio, you'll be joining, supporting, and gaining strength from the schizophrenia community. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 5 of Schizophrenia Community Radio. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is criminal responsibility when schizophrenia harms others. Our topic has a long, long history. In 1843 was established the McNaughton Rule the first major legal test for insanity. Englishman Daniel McNaughton had shot and killed the secretary of the British Prime Minister, believing that the Prime Minister was conspiring against him. The court acquitted McNaughton by reason of insanity, and he was placed in a mental institution for life. The case caused a public uproar. Queen Victoria ordered the court to develop a stricter test for insanity. Now, the McNaughton Rule was a standard to be applied by the jury after hearing medical testimony. It created a presumption of sanity uh, unless the defense proved that at the time of committing the act, the accused was experiencing a defect of reasoning or of understanding arising from disease of the mind. The McNaughton Rule became the standard for insanity in the United States and the United Kingdom and is still widely applied, all of which is why our topic, criminal responsibility when schizophrenia harms others, is important for all family caregivers. To discuss it, our guests are Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi and Dr. Chris Somerville. Laurie is a registered psychologist in Ontario, Canada, She earned her Ph.D. from York University in 1998. She's currently in private practice in Hamilton, specializing in psychological assessment and treatment of adults who've been impacted by a violent crime, a traumatic incident, or who have experienced significant loss. She's the professional consultant to bereaved families of Ontario, Hamilton-Burlington chapter. She appeared as a witness before the Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights. She was opposing the Not Criminally Responsible Reform Act. And she was the recipient of the Outstanding Achievement Award presented by the Schizophrenia Society of Canada in 2013. Now, Chris is the CEO of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada and Executive Director of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society. He serves on numerous boards and committees, including the Mood Disorders Society of Canada, the National Network on Mental Health, and the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. With an earned doctorate, 
He is certified with the International Association of Psychosocial Rehabilitation Services as a psychosocial rehabilitation practitioner and as an intervention trainer with Living Works. As a family member and a recipient of psychiatric services, he sees mental illness as an issue not only in health but also in social justice. So welcome to the show, Laurie and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Laurie, Thank you very much. Okay, Chris. Now, Laurie, first question for you. Please tell us about the killing of your son by a woman living with mental illness. Laurie? Yes, my son, um, Zachary, was killed by my neighbor, who was a 59-year-old woman who suffered from a serious mental illness, paranoid schizophrenia. When we first moved into our our home, um, our neighbor was quite cordial and, and pleasant with us, and our interactions with her were largely uneventful. After the death of her son, and then with my pregnancy of my son, uh, we saw a change in our neighbor's behavior. Um, initially, she was somewhat of a nuisance, blocking our driveway and throwing rubbish on our property. But over time, her behavior became more aggressive and more bizarre, and she threatened harm um, and even death. And her thinking was clearly bizarre and delusional as well. And we did have the police called to our home many times, but by the time they got there, either her behavior had calmed, so they could not apprehend her under the Mental Health Act, or sometimes, sadly, they said there was no law against being crazy. And these interactions continued for two and a half years until uh, March 27th, 1997, when Zachary was outside being pulled in his wagon by his best little friend. And our neighbor came out of her home with a kitchen knife and stabbed my Zachary to death. And we later learned that she stabbed Zachary because she believed that the soul of her dead son lived within Zachary and she needed to kill Zachary in order to release the spirit of her son. I won't comment back to you, Laurie, except to just say that is a story that we should all be listening to as a prelude to what we're going to be discussing in this episode. Now, Chris, please tell us about the work of the Schizophrenia Society of Canada as it relates to killings by individuals living with schizophrenia. First of all, I would say that we certainly grieve with families like Lori's and also the families in, in which uh, the person who committed the crime, we grieve with both sets of families because we think in many cases these, these crimes are preventable. Furthermore, we educate the public about the myths and misunderstandings about violence and schizophrenia, what the true nature of it is, because the, the public generally equates schizophrenia equally with violence, and we'll speak more about that in terms of percentages later on. But whenever there is a high-profile incident, usually involving, usually involving homicide, we put out disclaimers, and uh, for example, that only 5% of people with schizophrenia approximately come in conflict with the law, and most of these offenses are assault, or as they say in the United States, misdemeanors. They're not homicide. We also say that people with schizophrenia are more likely 
to be victims of crime rather than perpetuators. But in my saying that, that is not to underestimate the grief and the terror and the torment that families like Lori go through when it only takes one individual who is not receiving the appropriate timely a treatment who who does you know commit homicide right now Lori I'd like to go, go to you now and ask you another personal question which is this please would you tell us about the long term effects that the killing of your son Zachary have had on you Lori yeah, well, I'm I'm sure that you both can appreciate that the death of Zachary had a profound impact on me and uh, a lasting one as well. Um, in the initial year, um, I'm, I suffered greatly from both the trauma of his death and also from the profound grief. Zachary was my only child, and I went from being a busy mother to a bereaved mother and a victim. So for about the first year, I was rendered pretty much non-functional. I didn't work. I didn't even drive for about eight months. Um, And then slowly, I began to try to re-enter the world. And in time, I was able to focus on um, Zachary's death, uh, what I had learned from his death, and really, I think, through my own grief and trauma work, I worked to turn it into a situation where I could help other people suffering grief from homicide um, and also trying to educate people with regards to mental illness. Um, Because as Chris noted earlier, um, both families, my family and also the family of the woman who killed Zachary, were impacted. So I think I'm forever impacted by the grief of his death, but I try and keep his legacy alive. Right, right. Now, Chris, back to you. Please tell us about the types of questions that come to the Schizophrenia Society of Canada on this topic. That is, questions that relate to killings carried out by individuals apparently living with schizophrenia. Chris? Dr. Athlee, these are the questions that generally come to us by public or by media and I'm going to read them off my list here, and they are, number one, what percentage of people with schizophrenia are violent? Secondly, what causes a person with schizophrenia to do such a thing? Thirdly, what do we need to know about people with schizophrenia uh, in order to to help them better? Uh, Fourthly, what could, how, how could the crime have been avoided? And furthermore, why do people with serious mental illness have to come in conflict with the criminal justice system before getting the kind of necessary help that they need? And finally, often the media will ask us, how can you identify who is going to be violent? And there was an approximately in the year 1995, I think it was, a Health Canada report that said that those people with severe mental illnesses more likely to be violent were, number one, had a severe mental illness and were not taking medication. Number two, were using drugs or substances, had a history of that. And then thirdly, they had a history of a volatile personality. 
Now, on that particular point, I'm going to um, just bring this particular segment to a close, but to say what we now have ahead of us to discuss is the question, basically, that flows from that piece of history. Uh, is the situation that you've both been describing a matter of insanity, or is it not? And if so, what should the criminal justice system, uh, what should it be a reaction decision in these matters? Now, we're going to take a break for the moment, but basically we're going to be coming back to explore the implication of all the things you've said in this segment. So we'll take the break now. This is Dr. Lord Nathalie and my guests are Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi and Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and Powerful Conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Laurie Triano and T. Dormi and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is criminal responsibility when schizophrenia harms others. So now, both of you, let's talk about the ways in which criminal justice systems deal with individuals living with serious mental illnesses who have killed someone, and the ways in which healthcare systems care for individuals living with serious mental illnesses that actually led them to kill someone, and the principle of not criminally responsible. So, Laurie, what's your opinion of the ways 
criminal justice systems deal with individuals living with serious mental illnesses who've actually killed somebody. Laurie? Yeah, um, well, I think that it's a, a well-known fact when we talk about serious mental illness and the criminal justice system that people with mental illness are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. And I think we'll get to this, but there are many factors that can account for this. And I think one of the most notable is probably the lack of um, appropriate treatment and supports. Within the criminal justice system, um, the way individuals who have committed uh, a serious offense, namely murder, are dealt with, really is determined by whether they are criminally responsible for the crime or the act. And whether they're criminally responsible determines where they go. So they may end up in the correction system, so the jails, or, well, with the case of homicide, um, a federal prison. And uh, the criminal justice system, as you can imagine, is very difficult to navigate. Um, and for individuals with serious mental illness, um, it's extremely difficult at times. And as you can imagine, jails and prisons are difficult places for people with mental illness to live. Um, people who are incarcerated often experience um, an exacerbation of their symptoms, and they're then in a system where mental health services are, uh, I guess we would say, um, at best, inadequate. Um, so I think when people are within the correction system, the services available to them are quite lacking. Right. Now, Chris, what's your opinion of the ways healthcare systems care for individuals living with serious mental illnesses when those individuals have actually killed someone? Chris? Well, let me say, first of all, that I agree totally with what uh, Laurie has said. And uh, there's been much debate about this uh, with the high-profile cases in the last couple of years and then with the conservative government introducing uh, Bill C-54 uh, to, to um, amend the not criminal responsible uh, legislation. Uh, let me say that we have to look at it threefold. There's pre-criminal offense, mid-criminal offense, and post-criminal offense. So when it comes to the healthcare system, in terms of before the criminal offenses has happened, I agree with Lori, and that is, you know, why are there not ways and effective ways of helping the public and helping the individual who is enduring the mental illness to get the kinds of supports and treatment options that we know that work for people and can can prevent these type of incidences. Um, and then there's the mid-criminal offense, and that means that um, while a person is remand center or is waiting uh, for some disposition, uh, oftentimes uh, they, they do not uh, receive the appropriate uh, mental health services uh, that they, they should have by right. And then post-criminal offense means that, uh, as Lori said, uh, whether they are sent to federal corrections prison uh, two years 
in a day, uh, that's the worst mental health treatment you can receive is in a correctional system at both the federal and provincial level. And so the health care system is, is not adequate at all uh, in terms of dealing with mid-criminal offense or post-criminal offense, as I have defined it, um, simply because there's lack of resource, lack of capacity, and especially at the federal level, the federal government has taken hardly any responsibility significantly and effectively to change how people are receiving mental health services at the federal level. Right. Now, back to you, Laurie. Please explain the principle that's called not criminally responsible and share with us your opinion of it. Laurie? Um, when, when uh, I think criminal responsibility is something that many of us don't think about when it comes to particularly crimes like homicide. I think when a, a murder is committed, we think that um, the behavior um, is wrong and it deserves punishment. Um, but what the courts will consider is um, the state of the mind of the accused. So they will consider whether the state of the mind fits the crime. Um, so not criminally responsible under the Criminal Code of Canada states that a person will be found not criminally responsible for an act committed or an omission made while they were suffering from a mental disorder that rendered them incapable of appreciating the nature and the quality of the act or omission or of knowing it was wrong. And the meaning of the word wrong was determined to not be restricted to legally wrong, but to morally wrong as well. And as we've said earlier, if someone is found not criminally responsible, they won't enter the correction system, but instead they enter the forensic mental health system, which is designed not to provide punishment, but to provide treatment and rehabilitation. Um, and once they're in the forensic mental health system, decisions are made um, by an, an, a review board. And in making their decisions, the review board will consider whether the individual is a threat um, because they work to balance public safety with the rights to treatment to individuals with mental illness. And it's my opinion that uh, the review boards are working well, and they work very hard to balance public safety with the rights of those with mental illness. And their efforts do seem to be working. Uh, research shows that the recidivism rates of NCR accused are lower than persons who are found criminally responsible and managed by the corrections system. Now, I'm going to go to Chris, and it's essentially the same question, but with a slightly different focus. Please, would you highlight for us the implications for individuals living with schizophrenia of the principle of not criminally responsible, and then share with us your opinion of the um, principle. Chris? I have to say that I 
totally and absolutely agree with Lori in terms of what she has said. Uh, but I, I want to be very emphatic about the fact, and I'm sure that Lori would agree with me, that most people with schizophrenia are not violent and do not even have a criminal record. Now, most of those, and very few, uh, when you talk about percentages, most who are violent, found to be violent, have a previous criminal record. So the not criminally responsible means that, well, first of all, let me just say this, that people with mental illnesses can violate the law or commit a criminal offense for the same reason that others do. I mean, I have a brother with schizophrenia, a brother with, uh, he's deceased now, but he had bipolar disorder, and they spent time in the correctional system in America. And... uh with a lot of the offenses, they knew what they were doing. So they had made a choice. So what I'm saying is that people with mental illness can violate the law or commit a criminal offense for the same reason that others do, and that is a choice, either out of anger, revenge, because they have a volatile personality, or they're under the influence of, of drugs. But nonetheless, when you come to the not criminally responsible, pragmatically what it means is and only about 1%, less than 1% of anybody that comes in conflict with the criminal justice system is, is deemed not criminally responsible. It basically means that when the person committed the crime, they did not know the rightness and the wrongness of what they did. They had no conscience or conscientiousness uh, awareness that what they was doing was against societal mores and, 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 and laws. And so we have this benevolency about our judicial system in North America that says that such people who do not realize the consequences and the wrongness of the act of what they did, whether they have Alzheimer's disease, whether they may be mentally challenged, or they have a severe form of mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, we do not send them through the regular judicial system, but through what Lori said is the forensic system. Can I ask you a very quick um, addition to that? That in detention centers, there are people waiting um, there, not because they've been found guilty of anything whatsoever, but because nobody can find the money to bail them out. And what that means is that people with mental illness, and uh, I don't have a statistic to throw at you, but they are very commonly, if I can use that word, in that situation. And it seems to me that under those circumstances, what you both are saying is that this whole question of how the criminal justice system and its various detention systems deal with people with mental illnesses is a big, big question. Now, I won't ask you to say yes or no to that because you don't have time to, to respond to me fully. So we'll take the break, and then we're going to get into some more questions uh, that explore your opinions on these kinds of things. So now it's time to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Adley. My guests are Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi and Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, sharing the birds.ca. Please stay with us. You will be back. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Up Close with Chris Tinney is now on Voice America Variety. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, Chris brings you the thought leaders, activists, and socially responsible entrepreneurs taking action for the environment, doing business in a new way, and helping the underprivileged. Call in or listen in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and learn how the small decisions you make today have a big impact on our small planet in the future. Tune in to Up Close with Chris Tinney on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is criminal responsibility when schizophrenia harms others. Now, let both of you please talk about the changes you want or don't want to see in the ways criminal justice systems deal with individuals living with serious mental illnesses that led them to kill someone and changes in the way healthcare systems care for these individuals. So, Laurie, starting with you, what changes do you want or do you not want to see in the ways criminal justice systems deal with the individuals who we're talking about? Laurie? When I, when I think about the criminal justice system and reflect on, on my own personal experience, I think that the area of the criminal justice system that stands out uh, as one needing um, some assistance is is the policing. Um, so like Chris said, even before um, an act has been committed or a charge has been made, um, it, we came in contact over a dozen times with the police. Um, and, and I think that component of the criminal justice system lacked um, education with regards to uh, mental illness. Uh, And like Chris said, some of the risk factors. My neighbor um, did have uh, previous uh, violent um, behaviors and charges. 
So I think that better education within the criminal justice system at the front of it is probably um, one area where I would like to see a lot of change. And I know here in Hamilton, Ontario, there has been a lot of, of training around place interactions with those with serious mental illness. Um, we are seeing some positive um, effects in terms of diversion, which I think is another important way that the criminal justice system could deal with individuals living with serious mental illness by diverting them into community supports or systems that can provide them treatment again before they commit these heinous crimes. Now, to, to Chris, what changes do you um, or want to see or you, don't you want to see in the ways healthcare systems care for individuals living with the serious mental illnesses that have actually led them to kill someone? What are the changes you would wish for and would oppose? Chris? Well, Dr. Anthony, we know today how to reasonably, effectively treat mental disorders. And uh, that calls for three things. Number one, early, in, uh, early identification. Secondly, early intervention. Thirdly, early treatment. So let me uh, expound by illustrating with some of the high-profile cases that we have seen, uh, even the recent um, killing of uh, two journalists in the States, I think it was Virginia, uh, by uh, an individual, individual who had worked at the station. Now, people have come forward with collaborative information. So what has to happen is that when a person's circle of care or circle of friends or circle of acquaintances are aware that the person is having a mental health problem, mental health challenges, um, they, they may not know, may not have a diagnosis of a, of a mental illness, but parents, teachers, employers, employees, fellow workers and students, they need to share that information with each other. What we find common in all these cases in the United States as well as in Canada is that no one is talking to one another or to each other. And then after the news story breaks, then the folks sort of come forward and say, well, yeah, I observed this behavior, this anger management issue, or what have you. And and so until people, you know, are willing to discuss mental illness, normalize it to some degree, because one in five of us have a mental illness. I struggle with clinical depression, at times suicidal ideation when I was a young person, as well as in my previous years, substance abuse. If if everybody who knew about that had come together and say, let's help Chris in terms of early identification, early intervention and early treatment, I might have been resistant, but at least they were sharing it, and then they could utilize the Mental Health Act. And so the Mental Health Act in each province across Canada allows a person to go to a magistrate or judge and to ask for an involuntary assessment when you perceive that the person is of danger to themselves or to others or there's imminent deterioration uh, in their life. Now, back to you, Laurie. Again, it's changes you want to see or don't want to 
healthy in the way healthcare systems care for individuals living with the kind of illnesses we're talking about, which could lead them to kill someone. Laurie? Yeah, I think that our healthcare system um, in Canada needs to begin to recognize that uh, mental health is such a critical part of an individual's overall health. And like Chris said, one in five people will suffer a mental illness, and yet treatment is, first of all, it's not very um, available, so there's not a lot of treatment available, and the treatment that is available is often very hard to to access. Um, I have clients in my private practice who don't know where to begin in terms of getting themselves or a family member into mental health services. So I think we need more funding, of course. I think we need to make services more easily accessible, need to increase some education in terms of what is available. And I think, like Chris said, that sharing of information is critical. Individuals who have a serious mental illness often lack insight into their illness. Uh, My neighbor, for instance, she was unaware of how ill she was, Um, and her daughter tried to access care for her Um, but sadly, no one really listened. Um, So I think that the sharing of information among healthcare providers and also, like Chris said, um, among that circle of care with healthcare providers is critical. And people are often fearful because of our privacy legislation, but there's nothing that really stops us from sharing our concerns with the healthcare system. We just need the healthcare system to listen to the information that they're receiving and then to work together and with other systems to bridge the gaps with with communication. Right. Now, Chris, back to you. What changes, again, do you want to see or don't you want to see in the ways criminal justice systems deal with individuals living with serious mental illnesses that have actually led them to kill somebody, or at least as far as we know, illnesses have led them to do that? Chris? Let me pick up where Lori uh, finished off, and let me come to the defense of her own profession. Uh, Psychological support services are not covered by Medicare. And here in Manitoba, where I reside in Steinbeck, uh, and the, the whole of the province, we have less psychologists per capita than any other province that I'm aware of across Canada. So even if people want to come forward and get help with trauma, PSTD, child abuse, sexual abuse, psychosis, uh, it's just not covered. It's, it's just not available unless you can afford it through private practice. So we need to be advocating for the Medicare system to support psychological support services. Now, when it comes to the criminal justice system and how they deal with individuals with serious mental illness, I would like to see it more humanely. For heaven's sakes, it's a social justice issue. It's a human rights issue. And uh, these uh, people uh, did not ask for mental illness, and so, so we should be treating them more humanely. And if they're not found 
not criminally responsible, which you get the best of mental health services if you're not found criminally responsible in the forensic system, then there should be better mental health services available in the correctional system, especially at the federal level, but it's unfortunately not there. Neither are the psychological support services. We need to create an array of services uh, that the person can take advantage of. Uh, for example, here in Manitoba, we have the no- notorious case of Vince Lee. Uh, he is doing uh, very well uh, because he has a support team as he is being integrated into society now, uh, and the re- review board is given a conditional discharge. He has a psychiatrist. He has my assistance weekly. He has a social worker, he has a mental health worker, he has a half, halfway house worker, and we also have two police constables who are very supportive of his reintegration into society. So the, the main message is we can work more humanely with uh, these, uh, these people uh, if we practice what we know from best practices and the scientific literature. Chris, could I just add an additional query for you? Please say a little bit more about what the Vince Lee story is, because some of our listeners might not recognize Chris. Well, that was the story that, that happened around 2007, I believe, in which everyone calls it the Greyhound bus incident, in, in which uh, an individual by the name of Vince Lee, uh, who had been untreated, contrary to a lot of mythology, uh, beheaded uh, Tim McLean on the bus outside of La Portage, Portage La Prairie. And he was found to be not criminally responsible, uh, served um, in the forensic unit up until a couple of months ago when the review board decided that uh, he was well enough based on psychological and psychiatric testing. Uh, he was well enough to, to be released into the community with a support team. And, and your point is that that has been a success, that process. Is it? Is that your point, Chris? Well, most of them have been a success. I mean, people think that, you know, the Vince Lee cases, the Showburn cases, and other cases, uh, that they have been absolute uh, failures. But um, we've had thousands of people in Canada go through the forensic system that were deemed NCR, and the vast majority have not reoffended. In fact, the reoffense rate, according to one statistic, is that it's seven percent or less. Whereas uh, Lori mentioned earlier, the reoffending rate or recidivism rate for people coming out of the federal correctional system is is up around forty five percent. So you're more likely to be killed by lightning by by somebody with psychosis. Right. Now, just very quickly, Laurie, are you, do you agree with Chris's view that this process that he's described, not just for Vince Lee, but for others as well, is successful? Is that your position? Yeah, I mean, I think, as Chris said, the research does um, um, support that. And in in my particular case, um, the woman who killed Zachary um, remains a risk. Um, and as a result, the review board, has, she remains in a psychiatric facility. Um, so some 18 years later, given her risk is still there, she remains in a treatment facility. 
Um, so they really do um, consider public safety and and risk. And uh, like Chris said, the recidivism rates support the the process. Right. Now, it's time for us to take the break, so we'll do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Avery, and my guests are Dr. Laurie Triano, Auntie Dormy, and Dr. Chris Somerville. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you love to travel? Now, that's a silly question, isn't it? Who doesn't love to travel? Join Lindsay T. Boyd, a.k.a. The Dreamweaver, for Travel Time. A professional travel agent, Lindsay will spotlight the world of travel, from maps and other travel tools to make your trips easier, to your rights as a passenger, to different aspects of travel, such as sports, faith, or experiential vacations. Travel Time with Lindsay T. Boyd, Dreamweaver, airs live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, Please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Dr. Laurie Triano Antidormi and Dr. Chris Somerville. Our topic is criminal responsibility when schizophrenia harms others. Now, please, both of you, let's talk about what more you would like to do and see done to bring the changes you want to see in healthcare systems, caring for individuals living with serious mental illnesses um, that either led them to kill someone or could lead them to kill someone. So, Laurie, once more, you first. What more would you would like to do to help the healthcare system? Well, I think Chris has already made one point. I think advocating for um, improved funding for um, psychological support services and dollars, um, you know, for other services to help people with serious mental illness. I mean, often they're living in um, poverty situations that are highly stressful and make their conditions worse. I think within the healthcare system as well, 
I think we do need to work harder to educate some providers of the realities and struggles that family members have in trying to access the care um, for their loved ones. Again, I mean, our system here in Ontario, anyways, is very disjointed. Um, and I hear people over and over again say that either they don't know how to access system or services or there's very poor follow-up. And I think um, with family doctors, um, they're often unaware themselves of services that are available. So I think I would like to help and see change in terms of better communication among ourselves as healthcare providers um, in terms of better serving people. Right. Now over to Chris. What more would you like to do and see done care for by healthcare systems caring for individuals living with serious mental illnesses that could lead them to kill someone? In other words, this is a how or what about prevention question in disguise. Chris? Well, an important question, and again, I would remind your listeners that it's a minority group of people that we're talking about who come in such conflict with the law. It's not like you read about 10 incidents in the news each week or even each month. But I would say with Dr. Lori that uh, we need to listen to families and family caregivers and their concerns. So uh, we we get the complaint uh, quite regularly, if not every day, at the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society as well as the Provincial Schizophrenia Society of Canada that uh, when family members try to express their concerns and their anecdotal history uh, of their loved one with a mental illness, they are often dismissed seen as pathological and perhaps some would view as the cause of the mental health situation. Mm-hmm. So that's why the Mental Health Commission of Canada, which I served on the board of directors for six years, developed the Family Caregivers Guide, which is for professionals and service providers, service providers to look at how well they, they do listen to families and integrate the information that family caregivers uh, can give over not overriding the Personal Health Information Act, but that the personal that the Personal Health Information Acts or FIA as we call it in Manitoba d- does not disallow a physician from hearing the concerns of the family member, and we need to help people understand to know how to use the Mental Health Act and. Um, and, and, and once, hopefully, people are getting help, help such people would transition back into the community with the appropriate kinds of and the amounts of community supports and services that are needed in this community today. Right. Now, Laurie, what's your message for family caregivers worried about a family member who is living with a serious mental illness, which could perhaps lead to violence toward someone? Laurie, what's your message for the family caregivers? I think my message is to um, seek, seek, and seek, you know, help from a variety of sources and to use um, Chris's word, you know, try to resist being dismissed. Um, You know, talk to the family doctor. There may be a crisis outreach team in your community. There may be community mental health programs. Um, so, I mean, I think I would just say to keep trying to access service 
And I think I would also stress the importance of community support for themselves, um, for the caregivers, because it can be very stressful um, for family members living with individuals with serious mental illness when they can't access care for their loved one. Um, the daughter of the woman who killed my son tried to get her mom help with continually hitting barriers, and now in the end, she too has to live with this tragedy that's impacted us all. So don't give up would be my message, I guess. That's a very clear and good message, um, and it falls in an area where, the, if I can call it, the, the stamina, mental and physical, of and financial of family caregivers is t- on trial the entire time, and it's sometimes very unfair if I can express it personal view. Now, Chris, what's your message for family caregivers worried about a family member, you know, who's living with a serious mental illness, which could lead to violence or even killing? Chris? Well, unfortunately, the most likely victim is a family member, and I know that doesn't bring a lot of consolation uh, to families who may have a person with an enduring, serious, persistent mental illness like schizophrenia. But let me say to families that the Schizophrenia Society of Canada believes that persons who have committed offenses due states of mind or behavior caused by a brain disorder require treatment, not punishment. The Schizophrenia Society of Canada believes that a prison or jail is never an optimal therapeutic setting. Furthermore, we believe that mental health systems uh, have an obligation to develop and implement systems of appropriate care for individuals whose untreated brain disorders may cause them to um, engage in an inappropriate or criminal uh, behavior. And, and finally, let me just simply say that the Schizophrenia Society of Canada believes that provinces and territories and communities have legal and ethical obligations to provide people with brain disorders humane and effective treatments while in correctional settings. Thank you, for both of you, for those answers to this, these last four questions. They're powerful answers. And because, unfortunately, we've come to the end of this particular episode, I have to say the final thank you to you both um, for being, first of all, so informative, for being so open in what you say and in pointing the way forward um, in, in your various ways. And on behalf of the entire community, all I can say to you is to wish you continuing success in your work, as I say, for everybody's sake. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners. Um, and just to mention very quickly that we've begun a new research project called Qualitative Research, which this episode is part of. The idea is to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics, such as the one we've just been listening to. So please email me um, to hear more. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on my show, here's how to connect with me. Please email me at docg at familycaregiversunite.org. And interestingly, our next episode will be Mental Health Commission of Canada Guidelines for Family Caregiving Applied to Schizophrenia. So please join us same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.
Thank you again for joining us for Schizophrenia Community Radio with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thank you for supporting Schizophrenia Community Radio. We hope you, too, have gained strength.